0: Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 58. Coming at you with Dr. Tom Saris. You guys are going to love this episode. But before jumping into it, a couple housekeeping items. I want to give a shout out to my, our crew out in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. You know we love you. Thank you for all the support. Completely made that up. Second, August night, Our big event, Virtual Summit, Low-Carbon Ketogenic Approaches to Health. Like we said, we're trying to change the boogie, change the narrative. What can people do to take the power back, reduce their risk of getting ill from COVID-19? And so we're doing this event, 3.30 Eastern, $20 for the basic package, $50 for the premium, which gives you continuing medical education credits. It gives you audio, video recordings. It gives you transcriptions of the event. So it's, it's a deal. It's a steal. And it's us trying to change the boogie And so, yeah, jump on that. There's links to that in the show notes. All right, let me tell you about my guest, Tom Sarris. He and I go back years, and we currently work together at the Montfort Hospital in the intensive care unit. And the reason I wanted to bring this show to you is, as frontline staff, we saw what obesity, poor metabolic health can do to our COVID patients we saw that young people were more at risk despite being young of age but having that ba- bad metabolic profile. And, you know, Tom took saw what was going on and he took control of the situation for himself. He lost 30 pounds. And you'll hear a story through a mix of food selection, through intermittent fasting. And to me, it, it wasn't so much how he did it. It was the fact that he did it. The fact that he... Wanted to be the change. Show other people what it took. Show that he took it seriously and and be an example not only for the rest of us health healthcare providers but also for our patients. And so it's so beautiful. So you, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We also talk about what it was like being on the, what it's currently like being on front lines with COVID and amongst our colleagues and and other allied health professionals. And uh, it was a really deep conversation. And so without further ado my boy tom Serres, welcome to solving healthcare i'm Quadro caramante i'm an icu and palliative care physician here in ottawa and the founder of resource optimization network we are on a mission to transform healthcare in canada i'm going to talk with physicians nurses administrators patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, I am stoked for so many reasons because I got one of my colleagues and good friends, Tom Saris, on the show, and he inspired me, like, he wasn't on the radar to be on the show, but his story inspired me to get the word out because he's changing the boogie. He's taking his health and taking things that he can control and being an example for so many of us. So welcome to the quadcast, my
1: friend. If this is the way to get on, that's good. That's that's not too hard. I'm very low on the totem pole, so this is good.
0: I love it. I love it. So I mean, my friend, where do we start? Like maybe we should start with some of the like your story so like you've lost how much have you lost now about
1: 33 pounds as of uh, yeah this week i love it i love it and what yeah.
0: let's just start like straight up what inspired you or what's the reason why you start to push towards this weight loss
1: so you know a lot of people a lot of people want to lose weight obviously for health reasons right and and then I guess we've seen a lot of patients, right? And and each one has their own little kind of story or something that motivates them. And so, uh, you know, I'm 45 years old, uh, 44 at the time. I remember COVID was kind of hitting the airways kind of around January, February, right? Mm. And we didn't know a heck of a whole lot about it, right? So a lot of us were just kind of, I've heard with your podcast before, a lot of us were kind of like, you know, the unknown is scarier than the known, right? And mm. And then what ended up happening is uh, early on, we started to hear some some news about, you know, we all want to kind of, we were all kind of a little bit spooked by it. And we heard news about a little bit early on about how, especially in young people, obesity was an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Just anecdotally at first. And then obviously, there's a, there's been a ton of research since. So I think whether rightly or wrongly, that was my initial kind of uh, spark plug. And then what ended up happening was I just kind of said, all right, you know what, I've been living kind of this fast paced lifestyle in the hospital, basically, you know, just working, 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 you know, being a dad, I have three kids driving to hockey practice driving to, you know, uh, softball practice and, and baseball and stuff like that. And then at the end of the day, I just kind of said, Okay, wait a second. You know, there's certain things I cannot control, but there are certain things that I can control. And then there's just empowerment to just say, you know, if you have enough of a reason, you just, you just look around and you just see your kids and and a whole bunch of things. And, and I understand the risk profile. You know, I'm low risk. But at the same token, I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to, to kind of take my health and switch it up a gear. That was the main driver. And then there's secondary drivers, obviously.
0: Absolutely. And let me echo too, buddy, like how fearful things were with the unknowns Hey, eh? like when we yeah i mean this is the thing like we saw like you and i had many a conversation like we saw you know patients like not giving up too much information here but our age yeah that got sick and really sick yeah and it was clear though that they had risk factors that we talked about whether obesity whether it's hypertensive whether it's type 2 diabetes but yeah. still like when it's somebody that you know is roughly your age that can be quite intimidating. Well, and you
1: know we we've talked about it to a certain extent right like i mean you know it's amazing as icu docs right like we we need this veneer of kind of like impenetrability so to speak right or else we we can't do our job right mm-hmm. you you can't go into every single you know environment and you can empathize right mm-hmm. but if it breaks you down every single time that you you walk into a room you lose objectivity you lose effectiveness right Mm -hmm. but there's no question you know we can see uh you know you pick the disease a hundred of them in the icu but then when one of your colleagues has the same thing or anything breaks down that psychological barrier that you put up and when we saw that i mean i saw that with h1n1 unfortunately uh that also um that had a significant effect on people at that time i was in my 30s and and I saw, you know, a few, uh, you know, definitely people intubated in, in, in that age group. And I think when we first see some people our age, right, it kind of hits home a little bit, right? It's kind of like, whoa, you know, and and our brains aren't wired for statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Our brains are wired for like anecdotes and stories. And and so we look at that and then all of a sudden we go, oh, wait a second. And it kind of, you kind of feel that knot in your stomach a little bit more than, or a lot more, I should say, than than a lot of the other patients you really care about because you relate on a deep personal level. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. And just to, you know, I was still training during H1N1. And the one thing I would say that was more into, like, I was a lot more fearful of H1N1 than I am of COVID-19 mm-hmm. because it seemed a lot more random in my opinion. Like when you saw someone in their mid twenties on, extreme versions of life support on ECMO, that that's crazy. When you see some guy that's perfectly healthy die from H1N1, like your mind gets blown, you know? And I, once again, you, we're going to see those cases with COVID-19 as well. But I think once again, there would seem to be a little bit more of a predictability in this, in this virus,
1: no question. I You know, this is different, but there is a predictability. You know, I was looking at, I mean, I, I worked through H1N1, and I, I actually contracted H1N1. Amongst
0: other diseases. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no one's recording. No one.
1: <laughs> what? All of a sudden, public health is calling me. Wait, my, the door. my phone just rang. Three times, public health. It's the app. Uh, no, no, no. I was married and uh, happily uh, Julie's upstairs, right? Work, and, <laughs> so so. It's, I mean, here's the thing: the reality is, is that, yeah. So, I, and I think it was from an intubation, actually, because we've come a long way. I I remember the time, and I hope I'm not mistaken, you know, through just memory, but I remember the time going through my fellowship and being in ICU and treating patients with uh, atypical pneumonias and not running viral like PCR on them. And literally just kind of going, I remember that day and just kind of going, okay, well, bacteria, you know, antibacterials aren't working. And I think the H1N1 brought the whole concept of a non-bacterial pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't as prepared, right? Like I, I remember intubating somebody with like definitely not not mm-hmm. the same, you know, with H1N1. It was somebody who I think had come down from the ward. I was locoming somewhere and, and then it just kind of crashing. And, you know, my instinct was to protect them before myself. And uh you know three or four days later i 'm driving home with muscle aches, and you know two days after that i i can 't even open up a jam uh you know bottle because yeah. I've, I, you know i 've got so much myalgias. but you know it was fine it was, we got over that and but this one definitely has a different flavor societally right yeah but I do echo what you 're saying there's no question like seeing. You know, there's different age groups and different demographics like we I, I remember the thing for me was pregnancy in h1n1 oh yeah I totally f- like oh, that man. Just, I that forgot about me. that
0: that was so scary and we're not seeing I forgot that about one that is. yeah maybe I took that out of my mind grips because of just how PTSD that drive oh my that god was. yeah that was we did see some pretty scary cases with pregnant females. But wow. I mean, so it comes back to, yes, there's a predictability, more of a predictability. And it also said we we got to talking about controlling what you can control. So you decided this was enough of a push amongst other things to, to start losing weight. And maybe we could talk about how you did it, because I also want to talk about what we should be pushing to the public as well. But let's start with your story. Like, what did you use or methods you used to to achieve your goals a mask <laughs>
1: <laughs> done and uh i uh, sorry <laughs> drop your mic now <laughs> okay no so yeah no quite honestly uh so what did i do so i think a little primer here i think that each one of us uses i mean food as a you know, a a crutch to some extent uh, in in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when I have like night calls and when I have, you know, uh, particularly, you know, challenging days in the ICU, I come home and it's almost kind of like I've earned my debt and can start, you know, eating a dinner and then eating another dinner and then a kind of half dinner right before I went to bed, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think there's a, a, a huge psychological component, right? And I think, I think for the most part, a lot of people kind of like pick a diet or pick an approach, right? I think my take is I had to look at what was important for me and what I thought my weaknesses were with regards to food. Like my, I know it sounds kind of corny, but my relationship with food, right? Mm -hmm. And what I came up with was after dinner was rather than occupy myself with exercise or uh, other things like, you know, I hang out with my children a lot and stuff like that, but I always had this, this period of weakness right before bed where I just, I must've eaten every day, like 800 or 1500 calories, you know, just like another meal. Right. Mm-hmm. And then slowly that kind of added on. So what I, what I decided to do was basically just a little bit of everything, but one of the things, no question, I kind of gotten back to kind of a little bit more evolutionary times where we didn't have a fridge at our disposals in a pantry right like anytime like it's almost kind of like every time you have a small weakness and you want to like you want to comfort yourself you know there's a fridge right there you can like that you know we didn't have to do that we you didn't have the option of doing that you know hundreds of years ago right like so i think that's the that to me anyways if you if we look at it psychologically that's the key and and so, you know, with all intermittent fasting, I don't particularly claim to kind of do this 16 hour and eight hours, like perfectly, or I don't kind of espouse any particular kind of 100%. I take a little bit of everything, right? It's mm-hmm. a more of a nuanced approach. And so I try to stop eating after dinner. And I'm probably 80% successful at that. And uh, that's what's made the huge difference. So if I eat dinner at six o'clock and what have you, then... I won't eat again until, you know, when I wake up and, you know, 6.30, get ready for work. I'll probably eat around 7, 7.15. So, you know, that gives my body 13 hours, 14 hours of kind of, I guess you could call it intermittent fasting. Whereas before, it was literally the minute before my head hit the pillow, I was snacking on something. And then the minute I got up after my shower, I was snacking, I was, I was eating breakfast, you know. And so I think that I actually had a lot to do with it. At first, it felt a little bit uncomfortable, maybe for the first two weeks. And then i, it's, I don't know what happens metabolically to you. I'm—I'm I'm not. I mean, I do have a biochem and a psych uh, psychology degree, but but I don't remember the Krebs cycle and all that stuff to to any extent to give you an, uh, an educated answer. But it just became easy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of people that you know it just it just you know like. You know, and sometimes, you know, on the weekends, I'll push it to, you know, 16 hours and I have absolutely no problem. It's not like I'm starving and it's not like I'm, in fact, I'm eating probably eight or 10 servings of fruits and vegetables and, you know, uh, low glycemic index foods. And I also eat, uh, you know, fish, meat. I mean, I, my metabolic profile, so to speak, or what, what goes in my body right now is a lot better than, than six months ago for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a a lot of really good points. So one is I don't want to fully bring up or commend, like there should be a not one size fits all. Like it should be nuanced to that individual. Right. So what will work for you? And like, I'm a big believer of Pareto's 80, 20 principle, like what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. And I think you were analytical with this. Like you told yourself, like you eat a lot after supper and you know, whether, I mean, we could go into the theories on the timing of what you eat, like later in the night, whether that has some impact on uh, weight loss or your metabolic profile. But I think the key thing, though, is knowing that eating later in the day or snacking, what have you, was something that could, with adjustment, could have some positive impact, right? Yeah. And so, you know, so like, and then, you know, I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting for people because I think it's sustainable whether you do 12 hours, whether you do 14, whether you do 16, like whatever. The point is that you're restricting the time that you're eating, which I think automatically limits your calories, limits the amount of snacking you do. But, you know, there's also a lot of components on what you're eating. You know, are you eating a lot of processed food, refined carbs, and all these things? But the key thing, though, what I liked what you're saying is, like, you've kind of found what was your kryptonite, Yeah. And and adjusted it accordingly. And you're continuing to get results from it. I guess I really wanted to commend you for, you know, taking the power back, but, and also letting people know, like, part of the reason I want you on the show too, is like, should we be preaching this more? Like, yes. You know what I mean? Like, why aren't we? Why aren't we selling the Kool-Aid or whatever the expression is or the pudding pops or the do you, well, you, you know
1: isn't this crazy Okay so w- you know both you and I have had a lot of a lot of experience taking care of unfortunately the sickest patients who who've unfortunately developed covid okay who who contract covid And so we don't have a flavor of I think perhaps the hospitalized patients who do well and so forth and those patients who are minimally symptomatic or at home But there's no question anecdotally right away right we saw uh you know though i remember reading an article on um and, and there's more than anecdote to this obviously now there's yeah. been cohorts and and i don't remember the exact odds ratio but they're significant it seems as though anecdotally right off the bat people noticed that there was a certain metabolic profile and obesity was a very significant component of younger people who were getting more severe disease and i think i don't know if you agree with that but there definitely is from what i've seen so, and that may not bear out with like, uh, you know, higher age groups, because, uh, you know, different statistics take over there, but, but definitely with younger age groups. So, what I mean, you know, what I would say with that is the public messaging, I think, has been great. But I think we're in a society where people look at pharmaceutical corrections to a lot of different things, which are 100%. I mean, that that's how we cure a lot of people with a lot of diseases. But I think what this has taught us, and it's kind of an odd, like if you actually look at this virus from a sociological or, you know what I mean, perspective, it basically tries to take advantage of any kind of abnormality in your armor. you know what I mean? Like it's almost kind of like, and when I mean abnormality, I mean it as, you know, like something, for example, like, If the normative thing is to have a BMI of 25, for example, and you have a BMI like I had of 33, okay, it takes advantage of that, right? If you have a frailty index that's higher as an elderly individual, it takes advantage of that. Mm -hmm. If you have diabetes that's not well-controlled, type 2 diabetes that's not well-controlled, or hypertension that's been long-lasting for a long period of time, and we can get into you know concentric left ventricular hypertrophy and yada, yada, yada from that, but. But just to stick to the most important stuff, it'll take advantage of that. Whereas you said with H1N1, yes, it's true that you know flus take advantage of people in the context of any metabolic weaknesses or any physiological weakness from that perspective. But I haven't seen it to this degree in anything else, in anything else, like even sepsis. I haven't seen it to this degree. Mm -hmm. And so then my answer would be, well, what are we waiting for? So if you look at the major predictors of severe disease, you look at, okay, so let's go through them. So hypertension, cardiovascular disease, you can include stroke or, you know, vascular disease in there, uh, type two diabetes, which CDC is a high risk and CDC kind of says, well, type one diabetes is a, is a moderate risk, but things that you can control type two diabetes, hypertension, obesity, right? and there's no there's no question that many people believe obesity is a high risk factor. So a lot of people walking out there who are you know 35 45 who think they're you know completely immune to this but have a BMI of 35. And they what's become normative for us is to walk around in certain societies and look at BMIs of 33 and 35 and think that that's normative because probably 30 to 40% of our population uh have a BMI above 30, right? right. So what I would say is instead of waiting for a vaccine and which I'm more of a, I'm not a pessimist about that, but other than waiting for a remdesivir, other than waiting for, you know, a dexamethasone and things like that. I mean, that we use in, in those patients that need it. I would just say, you know, just think about what you can prevent. It's almost kind of like the lung cancer analogy with regards to smoking, right? It's not like we don't have the data. We didn't know anything come March, right? We had no idea, but we're in a completely different place right now, right? Like we know I mean, like you said, you can't prevent look, if a lightning hits you, lightning hits you, right? Like if, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to worry about this every single day of my life, but that's not my approach to this, but I mean, we work with it every day. It's not but it's more about if you know that hypertension, obesity, poor metabolic profile with regards to type 2 diabetes. And we can get into more of that because I've actually seen people who aren't, their HbA1Cs are not their hba one cs are normalish, or pre-diabetic. And all of a sudden, as soon as I start treating them with COVID, their sugars are like 18. Yeah. Right? I don't see that with other, I don't see that with sepsis. I don't see that, not to that degree. Right? And so I'm starting to read up about that too. There, there's something about being metabolically unhealthy that the virus likes. And makes it right. harder. So if you can decrease your, well, what's the best way to decrease your hypertension naturally? I am mean, obviously there's many people who, who require medications, of course, but, but anybody I'll tell you, you know, you lose 30 or 40 pounds, your blood pressure in most circumstances will come down, right? Right. Your ability to control your glucose intolerance will come down. Mm-hmm. No question for most people. And again, I'm talking about the average, you know, person with the, I'm not talking about outliers or. Yeah. So you're taking care of like four different Kind of risk factors by doing one thing, which is kind of eating healthy, right? Which I respect is hard, but you know, you got, we got to start asking, like, why is the US? I'll give you an example. Why is US? Why is Texas? I mean, yes, it's a public health thing, right? Yeah. But if you compare, again, anecdotes and there's some studies now that are looking at things. If you compare the metabolic profile of some Scandinavian countries, exactly European countries. And then you compare them to unfortunately our, our friends in the U S where there's no question. I mean, 42% of the population has an obesity profile, mm-hmm. but that affects your outcomes. I can guarantee you there's going to be more people per capita dying with COVID less than 30 years old or less than 40 in the U S than in Sweden. Exactly. Like per capita.
0: But this is what's driving me absolutely nuts. It's, Like, it's not even being talked about anymore. Like not at all. At all. Like, we get caught up in the mass, we get caught up in schools, and all this stuff's important, don't get me wrong. Of course. But honestly, if you could have a reasonable segment of the population that you could avoid getting sick from this, potentially by getting them healthier, and, and like, even if it reduces their risk by a small amount, getting fitter, getting healthier has other positive outcomes outside of covid huge like, we have seen the extremely obese patients come up to our icus after operations and you i don't need to tell yeah. you how many complications we see as yeah, a result yeah. Wound of, of problems
1: science. and healing, respiratory healing uh, ventilator social. coming procedures. off the ven-
0: yeah coming off the ventilator is more risky like a lot of benefits if if we could if we could uh, encourage people to get fitter and the, the other thing that's been blowing my mind tom and i don't know how, how how much you read about this stuff but a lot of these approaches whether it's low carb whether it's fasting whether it's keto all these kind of things you could get fairly rapid results like oh absolutely people that go on low carb could get some of them will be off their anti-hypertensives in weeks which is i mean you and i we went med school all this stuff i've never heard this i'm 42 years old i'm hearing about this now
1: do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, you know, I mean, I think it's the approach, I think teaching approaches have changed, no question, from the time that I went to med school, and, and I know the medical students that challenged me on rounds are, are a lot more adept at uh, speaking about this than I am, uh, probably for sure right now, but there's no question, like, from a public health message, right, mm. like, think about where our numbers are right now, they're so low, let's say we have a second wave, and, you know, that's a different topic for a different day, but You know, we're going to be stuck with this virus for another year, year and a half. Maybe it's, I I suspect it'll become endemic, but it won't have the same societal impact as it does now, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, at some point. But there's no question that just, if you just look at it with blinders on just for this virus, if you were to say, well, what can I do other than, you know, practicing good public hygiene, right? Like, you know, six feet and everything that we tried and do. There is an inevitability sometimes that sometimes you'll catch it because of, You know, one thing or another kid catches it somewhere. You catch it because you live with them or whatever. Mm -hmm. There is no question. uh, You know, correct me if you think I'm wrong with this, that not having hypertension, not being obese in like obese, I mean, BMI above 30 and having a controlled diabetes or even getting your HbA1c to, you know, lower than 6.5. And guess what? Not being, quote unquote, diabetic anymore or meeting that profile anymore. There's no question that that has a morbidity and likely, well, for sure, mortality benefit as a population, right? Again, again, I'm not an expert at that. We've known this for lung cancer. We've known this for a whole bunch of things. But nothing has grabbed the attention of the public like COVID has in my lifetime, right? And so I think this is a time. I was looking at another study the other day where the effects of – I don't know if it was in – it was it was back maybe ten, fifteen years ago and they, they looked at in Canada the number of people that died every year because of obesity related complications. Mm-hmm. Like directly, right? And it was huge. Like uh it's more than COVID this year by far. But of course that's because we didn't let it run rampant through our population. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to compare something like COVID to other things, but I think we have to kinda of wake up a little bit as a society to our eating patterns and obesity. So I'll give you an example, right? So think about the lockdown analogy, right, which I agreed with, okay? Initially, right? Because we we it was kind of like we didn't were kind know of what like, was going on. We didn't know what was going on. So it's it's kind of like somebody at war and you're getting shot at from all over the place and you bunker. Yeah. And you just kinda you regroup and you say, Okay, what can we find out about these people that are, you know, whatever. So it's like, okay. So if you look at that analogy, it's very interesting that We've known about the causes of obesity, right for like eons, yeah right, and even if it costs like lives and lives and lives and shattered families and in so many respects, our approach was never, okay, let's go and shut down restaurants and whatever, right? It's an interesting right because people are have just come to accept it, right, right. We've come to accept, if you were put into a time capsule and you went back to the 1970s and you saw me six months ago, you would think, wow, you know, like this gentleman is likely not healthy. Mm -hmm. But if you put me six months ago into our society right now, it would be kind of acceptable, right? So we've become complacent to it and just accepted it, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay to just have a beer gut. Mm -hmm. but actually you know what like we've seen a lot of people get hurt by that you know through heart attacks through MIs through cardiovascular disease and so anyways I mean this is broader than COVID obviously and and I haven't won this personal battle I've only been six months into it and so far winning it Mm -hmm. but we'll see where it goes from there but but yeah you you know you're you're right I I think there's a huge public message to put out there
0: yeah and there's a lot I mean even in your personal story, there's a lot of components to what you could emphasize. Like I, I still like, we're talking about nutrition diet and, and different approaches. I also, am a big, you know, believer of fitness exercise, like, sure. you know, just, you know, s- something as simple as after your supper family, go out with a w- go to a family walk with a dog, you know, get the blood flowing, like just simple things, right? Like, I do realize that could appear to be a daunting task for public health. There's also like the part that I haven't talked much about is, and you alluded to it, like the behavioral science part, like the uh, relationship with food with a lot of people. That's not in my wheelhouse at all. I don't even know what to say about that, but I think, you know, empowering people, ignoring, you know, someone like yourself, a physician that saw what was going on, he was able to do it. Other people that, we're in similar situations, we're able to do it more testimonials. Cause as you mentioned, people don't really care and think about evidence. <laughs> they yeah, they, they want to see the story.
1: They want to, they want to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at, well, one, one of the biggest examples is Boris Johnson, right? So the What's UK. Going, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so when he came out of hospital, whether or not it was his ICU physician, he said that's what he said on, uh, on media that he weighed a certain amount of stones, which I have. 15, I, no it's,
0: I think it's 15 pounds or 15 kilos per stone. I think it's f- yeah. something like but that. But he
1: was a certain number of stones, and then he said his BMI was 36. So this is Boris Johnson actually saying this. And he came out from that, and the story goes, at least the way I've read it in media, it was that his ICU physician actually spoke to him and said, you know, he thinks that one of the reasons he got that bad was his obesity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't look at somebody, I'll be very honest, you don't look at somebody like Boris Johnson and say, at least I don't, and say, wow, you know, you know, this guy is metabolically unhealthy from a, you know, just from looking at, you know, TV pictures, and conferences and videos and things like that. But there's no question, I think he realized it and whatever you think of, you know, the way he's doing his job and so forth is is aside from the story. I think he, you know, w- there's one example of that. And they, again, this is just one example, right? For me, I have to be honest with you, you know, one of the things was my daughter started telling me. You snore. You snore loud. And I was just like, I've never snore, but you know, quite seriously, like she said, daddy, you snore. And my wife said, yeah, you know what? I've never known you to, to snore. And then, you know, and there was two incidents where I got kind of spooked out and that was probably a, man ye- maybe a year ago. And that was, uh, you know, I was lying in bed and I still remember and I woke up kind of with like, uh, like food, like, you know, like a GERD basically. And it actually had gotten to the point where I actually probably aspirated a little bit. Right. And I started coughing and I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you know, yeah, I know I'm in my forties now and you know, call's not as easy and stuff like that, but that shouldn't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and so maybe other people, I don't know. I, you know, maybe other people would be kind of like, ah, whatever. That's nothing. But that like scared me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, and I said, I got to change this and, and I don't snore anymore. Like, mm-hmm. my wife says, like, even when you come back from call, nothing, no snoring. I never have that GERD. Like, GERD's gone, right? I mean, wa- like, just power walking I do with my wife. And, I mean, sometimes I power off two hours and listen to some music and talk to friends, get, get in touch with my parents, who are obviously isolating more than at this point in time. and And so, physical activity, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you know, also, I've also seen a lot of people in my neighborhood where I live, like there's a lot more people walking. There's a lot more mm-hmm. people kind of. So that's nice to see, right? I think people have reconnected with their families to a certain degree, some more than they had hoped to. <laughs> <laughs> I heard the divorce rate in Spain is like going through the roof now. But I could imagine.
0: <laughs> I love you, mommy. <laughs>
1: But it's a good,
0: like, certainly I'm definitely seeing more people out and whether that's just because of being confined for so long or the value of fitness, but yeah, I mean, it's a great point to make too, man. Like when you lose that weight, when you get fitter, like everything gets better. you yeah. you feel better physically meant like mentally, I'm sure oh, yeah. like less fog, more thinking more uh, clearly mood wise is impacted. Like, there's just
1: so much benefit of us sure, being and, healthier, you know? Yeah, and there's a little bit of ego to it, too, right? Like, there's, yeah. you got a little bit of stretch to your step again. Yeah, you got your swag. My Greek swag. Yeah, your Greek swag. But by the way, back to my dancing days. You should have seen, I saw
0: this picture of, what was that picture of you when you were 18 or something? I think I was 17. What, what are you talking about? Oh, the is the white big... shirt, like the Greek god. <laughs> like, what the hell, man? I'm like, I started to like, put my hands on the screen when i saw that picture i was like oh
1: yeah <laughs> so okay okay now wow. that you're bringing this up now <laughs> he's bringing this up you want to talk about motivation okay listen to this this happened sometime in i'm not gonna sometime in the last three years this is what happened okay was i took over the icu from you okay, okay? And i was taking care of this uh patient who would just be next and um her family was there and her family uh, member was probably, I would say, somewhere in their thirties. I'd have to guess. And I walked into the room and, uh, the, the family member, she said, you're not Dr. K. And I go, <laughs> I, go I go, no. And then, and then she goes, ah, too bad. And then, I, and, then and then I was like, I became this small. And I took care of the, the patient and uh, we kind of had a fun chat. And then she says to me, don't get me wrong. She goes, don't get me wrong. You no, know, she said a few things, but you're no Dr. K. <laughs> so I was on a personal mission to at least get to 50% like Dr. K. I might not have your pipes, but <laughs> dare say my hair's a little bit maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll get you. Take any win after that. You take all of it. (laughs) Look, man. This is still (laughs) hot. I dreams about that encounter. (laughs) I totally forgot about that. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, Can you imagine
1: how I felt then?
0: I was just like, uh... she was talking about. She was talking about the skills. Like, yeah, I know, I know. know. Yeah, nothing to do with um, nothing. Prettiness. Oh my god, TP. Oh man, that. uh, I totally forgot all that.
1: So that, so that was that was an extra spark to lose weight. Absolutely. And do you think? What do you
0: think our our role is like as clinicians? Like, do you think we should be verbalizing this? Like, I I like that. I didn't know that about Boris Johnson's ICU doc. Like, yeah, that's what saying, apparently, that's like, what Boris yeah, Johnson said. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, you know us. Like, we're typically not all about the prevention side of things. Like, we're really. In general, medicine.
1: Our society is not a preventative society. No, but
0: even at our level, like in hospital, like it's a lot. We don't talk much about it. We're, you know, we're rescuists. But do you see us like I'm I'm just, uh, you know, I'm always about taking the power back, not waiting for somebody else to take the lead on stuff. Like, you know, I'm just questioning out loud, like whether we should be more proactive and more vocal about some of these concerns. Like, or you think it's kind of like deaf ears kind of thing?
1: Well, it's not, you know, I think everyone's struggling with their own kind of like, so this I can talk about for, I think this can go into this part of the conversation, can go into some interesting places I think are important. So what is our role as physicians, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I've struggled with this during COVID. Like I've re like you've, you've created, an like I'm going to plug, you've created an incredible platform and you've done an amazing amount of public education basically and used your skills or perhaps any kind of like you know i read some articles about how you and your, your family are are dealing with this that are being public which i think we've incorporated as a family too and i've oh, learned wow. from you oh, so wow. you you know so props you. to you like thank you you've taken this part of what we do as physicians and taken it beyond the icu and and helped i have to say admittedly i've struggled with what my where my role starts and where my role ends and I, and I know a lot of physicians have uh struggled with this when it comes to either masks let's get away from like obesity for a second yeah. but it all relates mm-hmm. whether it comes to our knowledge about masks our knowledge of like within the hospital for example or our knowledge of you know healthy public health behaviors mm-hmm. You know, or looking at my Facebook and seeing like bubbles of 17,000 people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I digress, but like, you know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to say? I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating to a point, but you're trying to find that fine line without like being a steward of medicine, trying to give your input on things and then not sounding like an arrogant whatever. SRB. Yeah. You know? Because you definitely don't want to come across like that. And there's no question I've come across like that to some friends in the last four months. And I struggle with that because, you know, I think that the happiest I've been throughout this process as a physician has been when I just concentrated. I'll be very honest with you. When I just concentrated on my ICU work. Oh, amen, brother. And I let public health do their thing because I have. First of all, I think public health and Dr. Vera Etches in Ottawa. I can't say enough great things about the way she's handled things here. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, that I don't know her personally, but I've... Tried to get her on the show, actually. Really, yeah. But I plug, like, Ottawa Public Health like crazy because I think they've done such a good messaging job and, and you know, nobody's perfect, right? But uh, I think they, under the circumstances, they were the first to implement a whole bunch of kind of policies. And, and I think they've turned the conversation from one of a complicated... Public health kind of thing to one more of safer socialization, much like, much like when HIV came out, right? There was this whole push of abstinence, and then mm-hmm. people people kind of woke up and said, uh, "No, right?" Exactly. You can't lock people up forever, but I think what Ottawa Public Health is doing is kind of saying, you know, trying to get the message out: indoors, don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like to a certain degree, obviously. I, there's a nuance to that, obviously. But they've put out messages about how to safely socialize because we're humans. We need that. Mm -hmm. And so all of that to say, to get back to your initial question with, which is what is our role? I have to be honest. I have in the last month or two, I just, I found myself when I was on Twitter, I found myself when I was on like talking to friends, just always focusing on, you know, the 10 kids that I see playing basketball like contact basketball down in the park, for example, right? Or the 30 people that kind of get together out at the park with obviously no social distancing or anything like that. And, and then as a physician, you know, is it my role to like go in there and say, you know, put my badge on and I'm obviously joking, but, you know, Mm -hmm. and say, you know, clear up guys, you know, this is, this is going to lead to this, this is going to lead to this. And, you know, I've kind of shut that part of myself down a little bit because mm-hmm. I've just kind of said that that's I only have a certain amount of energy. And I mm-hmm. think that for me, as a physician, I go into work, you know, as well as I do, I do pretty much one and two ICU almost. Mm-hmm. And so when I go into the ICU, I, I do my ICU job. And there's no question I'm preachy by nature a little bit. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've recognized my own faults, and and I recognize that, you know, the classic, I point one finger, there's three pointing right back at me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not perfect in this. And I also have to recognize the fact that I'm a healthier individual, happier individual when I do my job, which I think in all, in all respects is hard enough, right? Man. Like, we deal with stuff that is, you know… People
0: have no idea. It's funny. It's that was the one, one thing about COVID that, that put a lens on what it's like to work in the ICU a little bit, and yeah. you know, the stresses of ICU. Like, yes, COVID obviously brought an another huge element to that. But our day to day, I think, no one really still doesn't have a full appreciation of how crazy no. the stuff we deal with is.
1: And you know, and, you know who else I had a lot of, like who I developed a ton of appreciation for. And, and I just got into this conversation. This is this is actually, I'm glad we got into this. So it's a two-point thing that I want to mention. And one is a ton of appreciation for the nursing staff in the ICU. Like yes. a ton. You're yes. talking like there are different risk profiles out there, right? Mm-hmm. And as a physician, we're not we're not we're not as intimately connected with our ICU patients, right? Like we do our rounds, we go around. But especially in March and April when we 12 did- 12 hours. You know, yeah. like 12 hours at the bedside, man. Yeah. And when I was having a bad day, I would look at some of my nursing colleagues and I would be like, you know, there'd be people in their late 50s, early 60s. like, mm-hmm. and, and they know, like risk factor wise, it's very different than if you're 44. Yeah. And even our younger colleagues who are phenomenal, you know, nobody knows, right? So- They walk in there, and it's like they had a smile on their face. Yes, there was anxiety at the the first couple of weeks, right? But it seems more and more that they accepted their societal role, Mm -hmm. and we accepted our societal role. And what I'm trying to say is that everybody in the healthcare field really came together, accepted our role in society, and instead of kind of saying, that's it, we're out. We're not doing this. All we really asked for was PPE. Mm. and let's get to business we have a you know we have a role to play i even had this uncomfortable conversation with my daughter i remember we were walking one day and she's 13 years old and she's she's smart enough to and this was probably one of the most uncomfortable conversations i had with her and i said you know because at that time i didn't we didn't know age data and this like we, we we're just starting to get things from italy and china and stuff like that and i said to her i said you know would you want daddy I straight up, I still remember exactly where we were. We were, we were just walking down the street about 200 meters from here. And it just clicked in my mind. I have to have this conversation with my daughter. And, and I said, would you want daddy, if there was a risk that daddy would get really sick or even die, would you want daddy to take that risk to help people? Even if it meant the worst or would you want him to back off and whatever? And she thought about it for about. Five seconds, I think. And she said, and she looked at me and she kind of teared up a little bit, but she said, I would want you to do what's right for people. And, you know, whether or not you get that motivation from that or a lot of my nursing colleagues and a lot of the, you know, the custodial staff at our hospital that are, you know, like braver than like in this scenario. More All of than us. That, yeah, right? 100%. That's where I got my motivation from. Now well, now we know a lot more. and We know how to protect ourselves a lot more. We know that we're, you know, the risk is a lot less, you know, given where the viral loads are and things like that. When that's a, that's a scientific topic. But I think that, you know, as a society, we each have to, and this goes now onto another thing, which is teaching. And also, you know, you're starting to see certain anxieties in different professions now that are going to be potentially exposed a lot more than in their normal day-to-day lives that they can protect themselves from to a certain degree, right? Hmm. But I think the message in that also has to be, you know, nothing's 100% safe, but we try to make it as safe as possible. But we each have our role to play in society, and we each have to try and live with this as best as we can or else society doesn't function well. And this goes Hmm. even to sports teams, by the way, right? Hmm. When the NHL were talking about like, I don't want to get too off topic, but I hope I'm not getting off topic here. But when the NHL was talking about bubbling and the NBA, uh, we won't talk about the MLB because I think their their approach is – yeah. it, It's not – yeah. It's not – anyways. But there's a societal role to that. You know? Like, you know, most of those guys are in their 20s. They're in a bubble. Statistically, you know as well as I do that it's not going to be a big deal for most of these guys, right? And I don't mean, I mean that with respect. I'm not trying to say that this is not a dangerous virus. If anybody understands it's a dangerous virus, trust me, it's us. But they have a lot of, they have a lot of protections. And we have to talk about statistics in that. And they provide a social good. The fact that I can be motivated at night to watch with my kids uh sport and get them in, interested and get my mind off, whatever. That's important. So I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody has a role. Like we're not like I see frontline heroes, frontline heroes and stuff like that. But everybody has a role.
0: Yeah, but I couldn't help the well up though when we think about the nursing staff. Can't forget about the respiratory therapists. Oh my god,
1: the respiratory but, therapists are. Oh my god, I have so much respect for them, and they know that. Absolutely, but
0: the fact that everyone was like and.
1: And the PTs and OT, everybody. Yeah,
0: everybody, like, and just to be clear to those listening, like by far the majority of people were like, we are going to step up. We yeah. are going to do what our society needs now. Because yeah. whether we got societal props or not, this was going to happen. This was innate in yeah. people. And this was such a beautiful movement. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but I was looking forward to going to work after dealing with some of this stuff. I'm like that, that sense of community, that sense of like camaraderie, like we were part of a team that was doing some amazing stuff and truly amazing stuff. But yeah, I just, I just want to emphasize like that whole, like, you know, that role and, you know, cause it's, we're getting into complicated times, as you mentioned the, you know, the sports, but also like the teachers right now, they're yeah. scared, they're scared as hell. And yeah what I want to say to any teachers listening now is that, you know, we need you. This is, you know, we had that fear, we had that anxiety, but with time, with exposure, with the idea of knowing that, you know, the stuff that we're doing works to protect us. And even if we, we get exposed, there, there's there's safety measures in place, but ultimately society needs you. We need you. This is, we need you. This is your time to be that frontline hero.
1: Exactly. And I think the next frontline heroes so to speak are going to be our teachers. You know? Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, I've the best influences in my children's lives have been teachers and I'm sending all of my children back to school. Same here. And I think there's a, you know, we can do homeschooling and and we can do private schooling, but we don't. That's our choice. And I know there's, you know, this is a complicated topic because obviously there's a lot of anxiety with uh in the teaching profession and rightly so to a certain degree and i respect that because i've i felt that right mm-hmm. and none of us are immune to to potentially getting this at work right mm-hmm. but i think we have to try and go to science as much as we can i don't pretend to be an expert on you know childhood transmissions because i think it's a smorgasbord of like different v- studies and things like that but if we can keep our background Community transmission level low. And, you know, I have a friend who works in Texas and a very good friend of mine, actually, one of my best friends. And, you know, that's a different consideration right now, right? Yeah, that, like, we're like, not Texas. We're not Texas, right? So I think in any discussion that we have to have, and if you want to get a good discussion, let me start talking about the Atlantic bubble, bring it up. If we want to have a discussion about how to deal with COVID, we have to stop thinking about anecdotes Hmm. we have to start kind of looking at data right and let epidemiologists discuss things uh talk about things and yes when it comes to a certain again i don't speak for teachers and i don't speak for teachers and coaches have been the absolute best influences in my children's lives so i respect that but I think, you know, yes, of course, if there's a 65-year-old teacher who has, you know, uh significant risk factors, absolutely. But I think, you know, for the 35-year-old or 40-year-old teacher who's healthy otherwise, we have to put our risk and society's benefit amongst everything else. Because you have to remember, like, none of the nurses that I know or the OTs or the PTs or the RTs signed up for the army right like this wasn't something where you you go into the hospital and say you know what there is a possibility that i may get seriously ill at work like you know you do that when you sign up to be a you know a cop right Mm -hmm. police officer you do that when you sign up for the army there's an understanding there right but as a physician i don't know about you but nobody asked me in my medical school interviews like yeah we have maybe certain exposures hep b hep c hiv those kind of things but it's not like, you know, it's not the feeling that we had in March. Yeah, right?
0: I do think we stand up for it to a certain extent, especially being ICU. I think that was a bit of a like, obviously not to this extent, but I think we all knew that there's going to be high risk uh, respiratory illnesses. We, I mean, you and I, depending on when you're training, yeah, you, I'd go go through Ebola, SARS. Yep. So like, I think it's part of the game, but not to the, not to the extent where You think, you know, you legit like what you're seeing in Italy and so forth. Like, I I don't think none of us saw
1: it. Well, we were scared. A lot of us were scared.
0: Absolutely.
1: I don't know what we're going to do now. That's maybe another conversation that you're going to have through. um, And I've I've heard you speaking with Isaac and Suman about this with regards to teaching and things like that. But, you know, they're our next frontline heroes, in my opinion, because I think that they're an integral part of our society. And I wish them the best to try to figure out what's comfortable in each of their, but there are so many good people on that front working. Yeah. I, as I said, I'll, I'll go back to it. Teachers other than my wife and I, hopefully as far as influence, teachers have been the number one influence on my children's lives.
0: hundred percent.
1: And they uh, need that. So I, I don't know. I wish them the best to try to figure this out and I'll support them in any way I can. But again, I, you know, I think that's a societal thing though, where we have to kind of try to figure it out, especially with our background activity right now, which is low.
0: Yeah. And, I want to echo what Tom said. We, you know, the teachers have been everything for our kids and, um, but you know, they're the next heroes for real. For Absolutely. Real, buddy. Listen, Tom, I think this has been a spectacular quadcast. I don't know about you. We covered a lot and a lot that I think people will find helpful, whether it's the value of, of weight loss, saying me- metabolically sound, how to be safe during COVID, getting our kids back to school, the rigors of our job but this has been an absolute slice my friend
1: we always get into good conversations you and i it's it's true even even if it's if it's trying to get a muffin at the (laughs) the 20 minute lineup or the yeah
0: something absolutely i I love it because it's always solution-based but yeah no i i totally agree my friend thank you so much for doing this and keep Uh, up the hustle my friend
1: yeah i know keep doing what you're doing you're making a big difference in people's lives club Thanks so much. All right. Cheers, man. Cheers. Quadcast Nation,
0: tell me that wasn't tremendous. It's what we're talking about, changing the boogie one step at a time. If you love the show, please leave comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. If we air this before August 9th, don't forget about our low-carb ketogenic conference that we're doing 3 30 august 30th eastern standard time it is sinister and for those that are medical you're getting continuing medical education credits leave a five-star review and some love on itunes or spotify wherever you listen that helps with the visibility of the show and once again for us trying to change the boogie we need the visibility baby awesome thanks so much for listening we're gonna connect soon and take care guys